Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would grant us grace as we seek to learn of you. And I ask, Almighty God, that you would grant me grace as the minister of this church, your church. You give me the grace I need to interpret your word properly and give your message to your people so that they might be instructed and built up in their most holy and historical faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As I said last week, we are taking just a little bit of a break from the book of James. We'll pick that up again after the new year to touch on a few Advent slash Christmas messages spurred on by, as I mentioned last week, something I heard uh, on radio, ironically. You remember last week, and this is a two-part message, and if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a little synopsis so you can get caught up to speed. I tried to point out that one of the grave dangers in our time, and it's been a grave danger for many, many, many years, not just in our time, is the syrupy sentimentality that surrounds this time of year. The babe in the manger, which is an absolute historical fact. But as I tried to point out last week, if we try to sanitize the story, it takes away all the power of it. Because the babe in the manger, as I said, was a declaration of war. We have Jesus, the king of the universe, literally using um, war language, being dropped behind enemy lines. He's dropped into enemy territory for a mission. When a soldier or a marine or service person, that's a better way to look at it, is dropped behind enemy lines, they're there for a specific reason. They're not there for R&R. That's not the place to rest. Jesus came here for a mission. And it was not, hear me carefully, it was not to be adored for centuries as a rosy-cheeked little baby in a nice bassinet. For a number of reasons. One, the cradle led to the cross. The cross is a nasty place. As I'm fond of saying, it's very easy to get sentimental about a babe in a manger. You cannot get sentimental about an innocent man executed on the cross. There's nothing nice about Good Friday except that we're saved because of it. And the cross would be a horrible day. It wouldn't be Good Friday if not for Easter. And Easter then led 40 days later to his ascension where he is now. Furthermore, the trip to the cradle wasn't an easy one. I appeal to you mothers. Does it sound like fun for Mary? Riding on a donkey, which under the best of conditions doesn't sound like a pleasant activity to me. Being nine months pregnant riding on a donkey, I don't know what either of those is like and I don't want to know. For those of you who are mothers, just try to imagine that. Nine nine months pregnant, on a donkey, riding, just so you can be 
taken number of by a pagan Roman emperor. This is the conditions of the story. It starts with great hardship. It starts with suffering for his mother. He's not born in a hospital where it's clean. He's born in a place that is physically filthy, dirty, filled with all types of contagion. All right? And that's indicative, as I pointed out, of the fact that he would go to that cross and become sin for us. The reason why Christ wasn't born into a palace is because he had to endure the harshness of living in a sinful world as an unsinful man, which is something we don't understand. We know what it's like to suffer in a sinful world, but we understand all too well, don't we, what it means to be a sinner. Jesus didn't know what it was like to be a sinner because he wasn't. He wasn't. I heard somebody tell me one time when I was younger, you don't have to sleep in a sewer to know that it stinks. No doubt true. Jesus had only known glory. And he came to earth to be born of a woman who would be slandered and who today is still slandered, as I mentioned. To be born. There's no room in the inn. That sounds so nice. There's no room in the inn. Well, put yourself in her position historically. That, is that fun? How, how about for Joseph? He's got to deal with a situation. All right? He's got a woman here who's pregnant, and they're not married yet, and he's, he's got to deal with some, some situations. And then he's got to take her. And the story doesn't tell us that there's a midwife, remember. There's no nurse, and there isn't a bassinet. He's born into a dirty, filthy place, and then he goes and dies on that cross. This is the God that you serve. And my whole point is this, is that it's dangerous this time of year outside. And listen, this is, this is something that Christians have to realize. We understand that Jesus is the reason for the season. Right? We understand that. And we want to fight against the secularization of the season. We get angry. Well, some of people get angry when, when they say, well, let's say happy holidays. I personally don't have a big problem with that because holiday means holy day. So, in a way, people are kind of saying the same thing. And, you know, just, and I learned to say that in New Jersey as a salesman because, quite frankly, I had a lot of Jewish customers. And I'm not going to say Merry Christmas to somebody who's buying something from me who's not celebrating it because then guess what? They're not going to buy it from me. But we get upset when manger scenes are forbidden to be displayed in public. And we're fighting that one war against the world, which is a fine, absolute necessary war. But what we don't understand is that the war is coming to us from two fronts. And what's happened is, is we're so focused on what's going on in the world. They, did you hear that? They, they, they won't let us put the manger scene up by City Hall. But the more serious battle is being fought on the other front that we took our eyes off of. And this romanticization of the Christmas story has happened inside the church. And that's more dangerous. 
We know that the world will attack our Lord. We know that the world will attack us. Maybe it's not really attacking us right now, but it is attacking our brothers and sisters throughout the world. But what we have blinded ourselves to is that within the church, we've gotten soft because we've put syrup all over the medicine. As I mentioned last week, castor oil is nasty stuff. Medicine, you know, they try to make it taste like grape juice. But we know that it doesn't taste like grape juice, does it? It, it doesn't. They try to make it taste like bubble gum. It doesn't really taste like bubble gum. You can still taste the medicine. And you know what? The medicine does not taste good. That's why we say, drink it fast. Here's a glass of water. Wash it down. Go brush your teeth. And then just sit down and breathe deeply. Because it's medicine. The medicine for our souls is that this is a harsh story. And if we try and give ourselves the medicine with a spoonful of sugar, the medicine won't have its deep effect. And I would hope that you'd want the medicine to have its deep effect. And this is what's happened to the church in a little bit more than 100 years. It's gotten... Just hear this out. Extremely feminized. That's not a knock on you ladies. You ladies should try and be as feminine as you possibly could be. You men, listen to me guys. Listen carefully. You don't have a feminine side. Okay? You don't have a feminine... You don't need to get in touch with your feminine side because God created you as a man. And here's what happened historically, and this is just this is historical truth. This all really started in our country after the Civil War. You know why? Because hundreds of thousands of tough guys, tough Christians, they killed each other. And they were dead. They were dead. They were gone. They were gone. And from that moment on, if you read your church history, certain events started to occur in the church that we now take as commonplace that are historically not true. And in our day and age, if something's lasted 100 years, that's a long time because, you know what, things don't last that long anymore. They don't, do they? But think about this building. It was built before the Civil War, wasn't it? The, the basic structure. It's held up pretty well. You know why? Because people used to build for eternity. You look at those great cathedrals in Europe. Do you think that if they went up in a day, they didn't have cranes? It took them hundreds of years. Men started to build those things, realizing, I'm never going to see the final product. I'm never going to see it. My great-grandkids might see it. Today, we have little instant gymnasium churches go up that just have no regality to them at all. They look like high school gymnasiums. Jesus is a king. And this is not preached very much anymore. The Jesus that is presented to us, he's your best friend. I saw that as a bumper sticker once. Jesus is my best friend. 
That, that sounds very nice, doesn't it? And I hope it's true. But it's really only half the truth. And half truths sometimes are more destructive than an outright lie because usually if someone lies to you outright, you can smell it and you can hear it. But if somebody gives you just half the truth, it sounds good. Jesus is your best friend. Jesus wants to be your friend. Now I'm going to encourage you to do something that I've never done before. I want you to go to my Facebook wall this, this afternoon. Not because I'm going to post something on it, because I already did. If you're my friend, if you're my Facebook friend, go there. I posted a little snippet. I shared it. Somebody else posted it. It's a little three or four or five minute snippet of part of a sermon by a, an African-American Baptist pastor named Vadi Bachman. Powerful preacher. And he's talking about what he called a sissified Jesus. And that's the Jesus we have going for us now. All right? He's pale. He's weak. And he wants to be your best friend. Now, let me just ask you about that language. Have you ever let your friends down? I want you to think about who, you're, who you would consider to be your best friend outside of your spouse. Have you ever let that person down? Sure. Listen. Most of us have been hurt by our families, right? Most of us have been hurt by the closest members of our families. So that language of he's my best friend, I've got news for you. To me, that's not all that comforting. Because I can think of times when my friends hurt me, and I can look back at times when I hurt my friends. I can look back at times when my own brothers and I were at war with each other. And I mean war. Nothing funny about it. But a king, you can't let a king down, can you? You let a king down, you're in a world of trouble. We have to remember the scriptures were written in an ancient world where the language of kingship and authority was basic understanding. The king was not an elected representative of the people. He was a king who had absolute power. Now I know that there's rumblings in our country of certain public officials trying to gain these types of powers. And we're nervous about it, aren't we? And we have a right to be nervous. Because absolute power gives people a lot of power. And they can do bad things to you. That was the world that Jesus was born into. Herod the Great, who was a minor little dinky king in the Roman Empire, you know, king of those Jews down there in Judea, they're just such a pain in the neck. Rome just, just dealt with the Jews. Just keep them stuff, keep their mouths shut. That was Rome's policy to the Jews. Just please be quiet and leave us alone so that we can continue to conquer the world and build these roads and aqueducts and, and, and big buildings. Please, stop bugging us. Herod ordered his execution when he was still a baby. He wasn't in the cradle when that decree happened. But that's the world your Savior came into. 
where people hated him so much that when he was maybe two, three, four years old, we don't know exactly, a decree goes out not only for his death, but Herod says, you know what, you go in there and you wipe them out. Any boy under two years of age and under, you take them out. Make sure they're gone. And a whole lot of innocent, helpless Jewish boys died because an evil, vindictive, non-Jewish king, ironically, was on the Jewish throne. And when he heard that people were looking for the king of the Jews, he was awfully surprised because he thought he was. And he sent out a death decree. That's the world your Savior was born into. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very nice. Do you understand that the real message of this time of year is that the king of the universe came and really humbled himself? That's the real message. Jesus is the reason of the season. And it's not so that we can coo over him. Babies are cute. We love them. Well, some cultures really pinch the cheeks. Oh, they look cute. Have you ever said, oh, that's an ugly baby? You just don't. It's just, you just don't say it. He's, that's, that's a cute baby. Now, most of you gentlemen are probably thinking, unless it's my own flesh and blood, they kind of look the same. They kind of look the same. Mothers have a different take on it. That's not the message. The message is he's born in this horrible place and people want to kill him. That's where the power is. That shows where the struggle is. That the father loved his people, you, so much that he sent his only begotten son into that dangerous environment so that he would go into an even more dangerous environment as a full-grown man. That's the message. And you see, if we take that away, we take the, we take the, um, take the nutrition out of it. It becomes fluffy wonder bread instead of good, strong, whole wheat with the, with the kernels still in it. And if you like wonder bread, it's okay. But we all know that whole wheat bread has got more, got more punch to it, right? There's a difference between those toaster pastries, right? There's a difference between those toaster pastries, which taste nice and are easy and fast and convenient. There's a difference between those and bacon and eggs, nutritionally. Everybody would say, now, there's a lot more protein in egg than there is in a Pop-Tart. That's just fat. It's okay if you like to eat Pop-Tarts. My personal favorite is brown sugar cinnamon. I just love those things. But eggs are better for you. And if we take away the power of this story, we don't get the nutrition. And that's what the Word is supposed to do. The Word is supposed to fortify us and strengthen us. And when you look at this passage in Isaiah, I picked this passage in Isaiah because when Jesus preached his first message in the synagogue, this is the text that he used. And he was a unique man at this point. Rumblings were happening. He had done some miracles. Miracles are powerful things. We get amazed when someone 
goes into a hospital and is healed. We're thankful. Imagine if someone just spoke to somebody and said, you're healed. That's going to get your notice. No doctor, no medicine, just get up and walk. And it happens. Message passes fast. He's sitting in the synagogue and he gets up to read the scroll. And he reads these passages from the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That When he read that, the people would have realized, we need to understand the context, they would have understood, did you hear what he just said? And he sits down, the text tells us. It's in the beginning of one of the Gospels. I'm not going to tell you which one. I want you to go home and search for it. It says all the eyes are upon him. He sits down. And then he says this is his sermon. Short one. He said today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. Another declaration of war because everybody in that synagogue would have known he just said he was the Messiah. Because everybody knew that this was a messianic text. And when he said that, that's when the battle really started to begin to rage. We have to understand when Christ began his ministry, you would think that people would be happy. He's healing people. Paralytics are getting up and walking. The blind are receiving their sight. We have to understand in the ancient world, there was no aspirin. There's no Tylenol. I woke up this morning with another one of my splitting headaches. No problem. Two Excedrin, cup of coffee, some water. I'll be good in, and I'll probably be good in an hour. They didn't have that. You got a sore body? Hop in your shower. Take a long hot shower. Take a take an Epsom salt bath. They didn't have that. They have any of it. You get a fever in our world? Take some medicine and put it down. Or have the option of letting it run its course. You get a fever in the ancient world, that might be a death sentence. And these people are getting up and walking and parading through the streets. You would think that would be good news, but it wasn't. They hated him because of it. This is before he gets to the cross. Because he wasn't part of their club. He hadn't gone to their schools. He wasn't from the right neighborhood. He didn't have the right last name. He didn't have his country card club, to use language in our day and age. He was from the wrong side of the tracks. Didn't matter what he was doing. Think about the insanity of that. That shows what sin does to people. When you can see someone making people who have been crippled for their whole lives, who have been blind their whole lives, healing them without any big rigmarole. The healing ceremonies read like they took place within a minute or so. You would think that that type of miracle would make them say, huh, okay, we've got somebody powerful on our hands. When he starts multiplying fishes and loaves, 
and feeds 5,000. And listen, listen, there was more than 5,000 there. Because in the ancient world, you only counted the men. You only counted the men in the ancient world. Presupposing most of the guys were married, you're looking at probably 10,000. And even if it was only 100, that's a lot of people. He's multiplying fishes and loaves. You would think that that would get their message. And it did. They followed him. And he said, you know, you're following me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. We have to remember that in the ancient world, in the ancient world, if you had one good solid meal a day, you were doing well. They followed him because they thought, i got a microwave here. i got a refrigerator and a microwave all wrapped up in one. And it's free. I had a supermarket, a refrigerator, and a microwave all wrapped up. In, it's mobile. All I have to do is follow him. And he says, I can read your hearts. You're filled. Jesus came not to fill our physical bellies. Those signs were to feed the spirits of the people. And it didn't. And the message that's preached from thousands of pulpits today will not feed God's people. Desserts are okay. You're going to probably eat some desserts today. Some of you. You're going to eat desserts. But does any responsible parent let their children eat desserts all day, every day? No. Of course not. Once in a while, you let them have some extras. Okay, it's Christmas, kid. Have some extra cookies. Knock yourself out. Have an extra piece of pie. Have two extra pieces and see how you feel in an hour. Okay? You don't have to have eggs. We've all done that at times. Go ahead, have a piece of pie. Have another. Hey, let me put some whipped cream on it. And then an hour later, the kid's on the couch. Oh, oh, I got a bellyache. It's like, oh, see, I told you. You eat too much sugar. You eat too much sugar. It may taste good going down. But when it hits your belly, it does different things to you. It does different things to you. Have you ever asked yourself why in our day the church in America has so many people going to churches? We have all these mega churches which are historically unheard of. Historically unheard of, these big gigantic churches. And you can even watch preaching on TV if you can't get out, if you're ill or old. You can, you can watch, you can, if you're judicious, you can find a good preacher on TV. The message is out there. So then why is our, our society, because we're Americans, we have to think of our society, why is our society going quickly into the sewer? And if you're not afraid for the world that your children and grandchildren are going to inherit, then you have blinders on. Our country has never been perfect, but it is quickly sliding into a sewer. And if you can't smell the stench, then you need to get your nose fixed. But yet all these people are going to church. Something's not making sense. If the message is to proclaim liberty, then why are so many who go to church imprisoned? I'm not talking about the world now. I understand if someone's not a Christian and doesn't go to church, you're going to be in bondage. 
But why is it if the message that Jesus has been sent to proclaim, to proclaim liberties to the captives, if that is the message, then why are so many who claim the name of Christ in bondage to petty, little, crazy sins? Here's why. Because of the pulpit. For a hundred years, the message has been watered down and sanitized. And we've taken the Lord of glory and made him into a 60s hippie. Really, that's what he is. He's got long hair. I have news for you. Jesus didn't have long hair. A, it's hot in Palestine. B, Paul tells us in the New Testament that for a man to have long hair is by nature unnatural. Jesus didn't have long hair. He wasn't a Nazarite. John the Baptist had long hair. Samson had long hair because they were Nazarites. The Jesus that we have is a long-haired, pale hippie. That's who he's portrayed as, who just wants to wrap his arms around you and give the world a Coke so that we can all... How did that commercial go? Give the world a Coke and we can all live in harmony. That's, you know, that's the Jesus that's presented, and that's not who he is. Is he loving? Absolutely. Is he kind? Absolutely. Is he merciful and compassionate? Absolutely. But you know what? He got there because he died on that cross. The book of Hebrews tells us that he learned as a man in his flesh through suffering. And he's a king now. This Christmas is a week away. We do have church on Sunday, by the way. We do have church next Sunday. And Saturday night, too. Sunday's required. Saturday night, technically speaking, is. You remember that that babe is now king. You can say no to your best friend. You can't say no to a king. You bow your now. You bow your knee to a king. So I beg of you. Rearrange your mental furniture and realize, he's the Lord of glory, and that's who we serve, and he's powerful. A babe in a manger can't help you when you're. Marriage is in trouble. A babe in a manger can't help you when, when you don't have a job or when the bills are hard to pay or when the economy tanks. A king can. A king can. The babe is now your king. And he always was and always will be. And he loves you so much that he bled and died to save your soul. Lord, we have to fight so much to get the right view of you. We ask that you would help us to do that. In your son's precious name, amen.